Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson, your gracious host. Uh, in case you guys are tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things innovation, ideas, creativity, smart people doing smart things. Um, the man of the hour, Jason Maiden, say hello. Hello, what's happening? Uh, who's the other voice we just heard? My man, Hirsch. Say hello, Hirsch. Hey, hey. Hey, hey, no, say hello. Hi, hi. How are you? I'm Hirsch. You know, I don't even know where to begin. This is like your third time, you know, kind of remotely. Well, first you were remotely on the show. Yep, now yep. you're actually in the studio. Yep. So I don't even know how to talk to you like face to face in this environment. I'm working my way up, man. One of these days, you know, you'll allow me to like drink water on the show. You, like, well, I, this is a step up. This is amazing. I get to eat and meet people. It's a budgetary problem. It's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not a success issue. It's, uh, it's budgetary. <laughs> Um, so I guess for, for starters, right, uh, um, you've had a lot of iterations since we've met, yep. but how do you describe a Jason Maiden? Uh, man, that's a great question. I think I've been looking for that answer for my entire life, but, um, the quick way is, um, I'm just a grown kid. You know, I'm curious. I like to explore and I give myself challenges. There's no person that can push me more than I can push myself. Everything, it, it, you know, that drives me is this notion that, your greatest enemy is your inner me. So it's the insecurities, the fears, the concerns of not utilizing my gifts and talents, you know what I'm saying, fully, that drives me. I just don't want to waste any time. That's awesome. Uh, what does that, how does that play out? <laughs> um, several things. I never make excuses for why, for why something doesn't work out. I don't feel sorry for myself. I never say, oh, well, it's me. This is where I grew up at, so therefore the opportunities are limited. I use everything as a catalyst. If something happens, I flip it to a positive, and I learn from it, and I move forward. So I think we get caught up so much in the negative side of things that we forget the lessons are in, you know, are in the middle of chaos. And, and like J. Cole talks about it a lot. It's beauty in the struggle. So many people look at the outcome of struggle. I'm like, nah, let me remain present in the moment so I can learn from it. So when the battle comes up again, I'm fully prepared. So every single thing I do, bro, is about leveling up. I don't, I don't run from a challenge ever. Never have, never will. How does that play out in business, right? Like I think, you know, I think in, in spirit, it sounds great, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's a, it's a great philosophy. How does that play out, you know, in your day-to-day -day, you know, operation as a business person, creative designer? We'll get into a lot of that sure. stuff too. Yeah, well, I think being resilient, people will tell you no. It's called vision for a reason because not everyone can see it. There's meetings that I'm in where I pitch the company or I talk about what we're building or talk about things I've done. And the first thing out of someone's mouth is, oh, I tried that and I failed. So you're not going to be able to do it. And I look them dead in the eye and say, well, that's your limitation, not mine. Because you failed doesn't mean that I'm going to fail. So I don't let people place their insecurities and limits on me at all. When someone tells me it's impossible, I say, nah, man, it's just difficult. It might be impossible for you, but it may be difficult for someone else. How do those meetings turn out when you get that? Turn out great for me. <laughs> because, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about being cocky, but right. it's about knowing that if you believe in something, you got to will it to existence. You got to push. No one's going to give you anything. You got to go out and take it. So I don't let people tell me, oh, man, that's going to be really hard for you. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know my life. You don't know what I'm going through. So to tell me that I can't get something done because you think that you can't do it, it's not my problem. Like, I'm here for a very specific reason. And as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm going to keep fighting every day to get my dreams out into the world. This is really interesting. You say that, you know, I just had a conversation recently about sort of the psychology of confidence, right? And we also balance out that, like, where it is, especially in athletics, right? I think yeah. that's probably where you, you, we see the most public displays of confidence yeah. and it borderlines in some cases, either arrogance or cockiness. Yeah. Um, you're also probably one of the kindest you know, yeah. people I've met. So it, it, I think you've kind of built a mechanic in your whole ecosystem where yeah. you, you can get away with it, right? Yeah. As, as far as 
um, uh, that sort of display of confidence. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have a question there. It's just an observation. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think it's because <laughs> yeah, you, you know me. Because it's like you know, I, I do make sure that I'm very polite. I'm very gracious. I'm respectful of people's time. Um, and it's not about cockiness. It's just you get one go around in life, man. And I've been in so many circumstances where. You know, um, I overcame, you know, near-death experiences. I was in car accidents that took away opportunities from me. And if I sit here and I look at my life through the lens of subtraction and division, I'll never be able to enjoy all the other positive things that have happened as a result of those difficulties. So it's not about cockiness. It's just about acknowledging that I get one go around at life. I don't want to be mediocre. I want to be the greatest at what I do. And I have to push myself in order to do that. Um, I like that you have already talked about this idea of pitching, right? And I think you have an amazing track record. You know, one of the highlights of your career is 13 years, I think, at, at Nike, yep. you know, uh, head of global brand design for Jordan at one point in time. Yep. Um, so it's interesting that you can still walk into a room now with like what people see on paper as a pretty decent resume yep. and go like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. Like what, what? I mean, kind of tell me about that. Those types of experiences. Like, do you hold on to the resume? You know, or like, how does that? How does it all play out? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I mean, here's the reality: no one owes me anything at all. Like that resume was great when I was at Nike. It helped me climb the ladder. It helped me meet people. Helped me, you know, evolve into the person I am today. But that doesn't mean that people don't give me points for yesterday's game. Like this is a new game. So in order for me to jump into the Silicon Valley and raise capital. I knew I had to reinvent myself. I didn't come in thinking, oh, here, I'm this great guy from Nike. Give me money. No. So I took the past three and a half years, four years, and I've joined startups that, you know, some have worked, some haven't. I lectured at Stanford, taught at Stanford. You know, I worked in venture capital. Like, I reinvented myself. I knew I had to earn the respect of the audience that I wanted to, you know, be uh, a part of. So I didn't take for granted the fact that the Silicon Valley is extremely different than the sports industry. And I also didn't take for granted that there's a million different brilliant people. There's talented people. There's a ton of ideas out there. We don't have a shortage of ideas. What we have a shortage of is, is people that can execute against those ideas. So I had to prove that, you know, one, I was able to, you know, transform myself into a startup employee or founder because it's different than corporate. And two, you know, extract transferable skill sets from my last experience into new venture creation. It's not that, People doubt me. It's the fact that they say, well, you drew shoes. How does that translate to running an organization? Even though I have a business degree, there's still questions because I spent so much of my career in corporate. Um, they're afraid that I don't know how to move without a budget or without a large team or without a lot of resources. But what they don't know is before I was in corporate, I was a kid in the south side of Chicago. And that's all we did was make stuff out of nothing. So I already had this scrappy entrepreneurship mindset something that we praise. We talk about, oh man, entrepreneurs need to eat ramen noodles and struggle. What I, I was eating ramen noodles because we had nothing else to eat. Right. So, so the lifestyle <laughs> of simplicity like, is embedded in my DNA. That's great. Um, what was your goal when you left Nike? Because, you, you know, like you said, venture capital, yep. jumped on a couple of startups, um, taught. Did, was that just exploration or did you have like a, a thing in mind? Yep. Uh, my goal was to do exactly what we're doing with Super Heroic. It was to it was to, you know, run with people that my coaches used to tell me, if you want to be faster, run with people that are faster than you. Um, having gone to business school at Stanford, I knew that people were moving extremely fast. So I had three goals. One, learn what it takes to raise capital. Like I wanted to see that process. I wanted to be part of it, but not responsible for it. The second one was learn how to maneuver as a co-founder. So I joined one startup as a co-founder and saw what the CEO had to do. Like I was intimately close to seeing how the business model was created, how the pitch decks were created, how you get meetings with VCs. And then having those two kind of boxes checked, I was like, okay, now I need to learn how to communicate. So lecturing at Stanford and talking with really smart people from different disciplines like finance and strategy 
and, you know, and uh, engineering, lecturing to those students in undergrad, I would get a framework of how they ask questions and how they think. Because when I walk into the room of a VC, they're mostly VCs who are former engineers, former finance people, former lawyers. So I'm like, let me figure out how they're being taught, because if I can understand their decision making framework, then I can eliminate the way they can tell me no. So once I got my story together, I got those experiences, very hard earned experiences. I was finally confident enough to go out and start my own company. Most of us hear, you know, these stories of founders. You took just, I think you just said three years, three and a half years to basically educate yourself. But with a company in mind, me, I'll speak for myself. Like I get anxious, right? Yeah. I, I, I dive right in, yeah. right? And learn on the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You chose to learn, then do. Yep. Uh, why? Well, it's, it's several things, man. One, this mission is insanely important, this whole notion of empowering children. Um, so I couldn't have such a big ego thinking, I'll figure this out. You know, I would, I would have shot myself in the foot and failed before I even started by not humbling myself and saying, there's certain skills I just don't have. And I need them in order to be a, a, a CEO of a startup. Um, so it's just interpersonal conversation with myself. That's one of the things that I think a lot of leaders miss is introspection. Like at heart, I'm really a stoic philosopher. I believe a lot in self-reflection and understanding, you know, your insecurities and weaknesses before someone else calls them out. This is driven through, you know, working for Michael Jordan for so long. He talks about how do you turn your weakness into a strength? I knew I was weak in, in, in pitching. I knew I was weak in understanding finance. I knew I was weak in understanding how to recruit people. So I went to places to learn. And it's one thing to... You know, it's one thing to have an idea, raise capital and, you know, go out and pitch and become a startup. It's another thing to want to build an organization that lasts. It's another thing to want to build a movement and build a brand and a financially stable business. So this isn't about a startup. This isn't a family business. This, this is about trying to build something that's major and will be here for a really long time. So the foundation has to be set. If I was to build this business on sand, then it will sink under the pressure of the expectations. So we wanted to have a nice, solid, concrete foundation of financial understanding, you know, um, the technology landscape out there, you know, the economic trends that are happening, you know, what markets are opening up, how can we understand consumer behavior? And you can't just jump right in and learn by doing in that environment. So I've done the learn by doing thing is how I got to Stanford. I flipped it because I knew I needed to develop new muscles in order to take on new challenges. It's interesting because there's a, uh, a phrase I heard earlier this year and it's kind of stuck with me. It's, it's what got you here won't get you there. Nope. Right. And that is exactly what you you know, what you've mentioned. I think there's some philosophies that say, hey, you know, surround yourself with the people that know finance and know how to be CEO and or all those things that you don't know. Your weaknesses become are, um, fulfilled by other people's strengths. Yep. Why did you choose to strengthen your own perspective in all those different lanes as opposed to like immediately like I'm gonna go get the best finance guy. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, having learned from. The greatest athletes of all time, having learned from the greatest business minds of all time by working, you know, for Mr. Knight at Nike, you don't know what you don't know until you experience it. So instead of me saying, let me find a person that's really good at finance, how would I even know I need to do that until I try to do finance myself? So what we talk about all the time is how many responsibilities can a CEO or a founder hold? And once you identify, hey, here's all the things I know I can do well, here's where the ball is dropping. Now I can specifically hire a person to pick up where that ball is dropping because in my experience in these startups, what I find is that most founders, they jump to that conclusion. Let me find a person that's smart here. Let me find a person that's smart there. 
And now you're not trying to solve problems for your audience or your consumer. You're solving problems for your employees. You're trying to keep them busy. You're trying to give them work to do. So then it becomes a conflict of interest. I hire this person. I pay a lot of money, meaning equity and salary. They have a tremendous amount of experience. I don't know what they know. I've never done their job. So I don't know how to accurately give them performance incentives or measure the quality of their work. Now I'm beholden to them. I have to trust 100% of what they say because I don't know exactly what they're talking about. Then when things fall apart, I'm scrambling to try to keep them, taking my eye off the ball. And the consumer is now suffering. I lived through that with a startup. And I'm like, you know what? I need to learn how to do every single job that I think I may need to hire for. So then I know how to identify the person. What are the character traits? What decision will this person make daily? What types of budgets do they need? And so by going through the pain myself, I could, I and we can be smarter about a hiring selection. Because the worst thing ever is to bring a person in. You have to fire them six months later because your strategy changes or the vision of your company shifts or your product can't be shipped. I saw that as well wanted to prevent that. So we took on the pain. We took on a heck of a lot of work, but now we know specifically who we need to hire. Yeah. I had, I had a mentor for a, a while. Who's a, a music video producer, like back in the days when like we were spending like a million, two million dollars. Yeah, Hype Williams. Was it Hype Williams? Yeah, uh, no, it wasn't Hype Williams. I worked with Hype at, at one point. Yeah. It was uh, Billy Woodruff, but it, oh, my, my guy was uh, Keith Pachelle, his producer. Man, so they did like a lot of Aaliyah stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. They yeah. did a whole bunch of like crazy videos. Um, and I can tell you stories about that. But one, the one thing I did learn from him was that as a producer, or let's call it CEO, the, the helm of this project, yeah. like he knew, you know, how many watts of light he would need. Like he knew uh, enough about all these different areas to be able to speak intelligently about those different areas. Yep. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. I think you, you're absolutely right, is that that's where a lot of entrepreneurs miss the boat. Um, so now you're putting all this stuff into practice yes. uh, with Superheroic. Tell us a little bit about what Superheroic is. Uh, so we describe ourselves as a location-based entertainment company. And it sounds weird when you hear it, and you see the product. Sounds super weird. Yeah. And the reason why we got it <laughs> is because you have to think about children, right? And what we're building is product that encourages and empowers families to play. So children, they think of the front room or they think of the mobile device. They think of the backseat of a car as the center of the universe. Wherever a child is is where they play. Whatever a child is doing is a form of entertainment and engagement. So we're like, okay, if we can get you back outside into the playground, and you look at play as a form of entertainment. Now, this entertainment is co-play, and it has narrative, and it has all these different pieces that allow you to feel valuable and strong and empowered. Then you'll make that decision easily to get off your couch away from the console and back into the park. So thinking about our company as an entertainment company, we have to have strong, strong, strong brand presence, a narrative that people can respond to, a look and feel, you know, archetypal characters, and, you know, I would say product positioning that's fun and inviting. Like if I was to put a movie out and I made it feel like, oh, that's not meant for me, that just shoots down your ability to tell a story. So we take some of those pillars from video games, from entertainment industry, and we package it in the physical product because play is at risk of being completely forgotten about because there are so many other experiences that can pull you out of the real world into the digital world. So we have to think that way. Um, so we build product specifically for what we call the modern uniform of play. We start with footwear and some light apparel. Um, and then over time, we're going to build in more digital technology to amplify how people play. Um, so you're starting with the footwear. Yes. Which is kind of, you, draw, you draw shoes. How can you run a company? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but as I was reading about it, um, you know, I looked at the level of design thing and they just went into that that part of the superheroic ecosystem yeah. um, and how tell us a little bit about the physiology of kids and, and the thing that went into just the physical act of, of yeah. play in the design of the shoe yeah so you know the beautiful thing about children is they give very binary feedback 
they'll tell you, oh, it's uncomfortable. Oh, I don't like it. Right? It's very clear if they are. It's funny because as parents, though, like, not as business people, yeah. but as parents, I'll go like, that shoe is fine. You're yeah. all right. Just put it on. Let's go. Yeah, like, come on, let's get out the house. Right? <laughs> and, so, and so what's so interesting is all the, the insight already exists in the world. We just had to repurpose the things we knew about athletes and simplify them for children. Um, what was awesome in that exploration is what we found is there are three core things we needed to focus on. The first being emotional intelligence. You know, we talk a lot about social emotional learning and education, but simply put, it's goal setting. When you go to the playground, kids have a goal in mind. Oh, today's the day where I'm going to jump off the swing. Today's the day I'm going to run up the slide instead of going down the slide. That mindset is a growth mindset. That mindset is a lot is exactly what we need our future leaders to think about. You know, we need children that can see the world for what it could be versus what it is. So that's the first piece, the insight around how children think about goal setting. The second piece was, as you mentioned, physiology. A lot of the products out there are just adult products shrunken down for kids. And the whole health and wellness industry is positioned to fix broken adults. So I'm like, wait, if I used to work on products that help people quit smoking, lose weight, feel good about themselves, then why can't I work on products that prevent that from ever happening? So play is a form of prevention. So we had to think about what types of things do we have to prevent? First, um, positive development of the body. So starting with the feet, that's where I'm, that's what people know me for primarily, even though I have a background in a ton of other things. I know I needed to go to the sharpest point to make the message you know, be heard the loudest. There's so many different things that we could have done in terms of footwear, but this particular model of the tumbler is built for that active kid. It's the kid that loves to just run and jump and climb and tumble and fall and roll in the grass, like that very hyperactive kid that's just positively charged up with good energy that wants to go out into the world and explore. Also, it's for the kid who's a little bit afraid to try something for the first time. It's why we have the backpack and the cape, right? It's like, yo, put this on and you can transform. It's not you doing it. It's your alter ego doing it. So when you think about how the foot of a child is different than an adult's, you think about how the play pattern of a child is different than adults. You think about all the impact and forces that a child puts on a product, which is different than adults. It's easy to see how we can find a million different ways to solve, um, or I should say take advantage of the opportunity of using play as a catalyst for future performance. And that's essentially what we're trying to do. Um, I have a couple of lines of thought, but, but one, you, I think you could have made this easy on yourself, yeah. right? You could have taken this idea and partnered with yeah. XYZ company, a Nike, a Brooks Run, I don't know, you, you, you know the world better than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, why, why not go that route? Was there anything, like, I'm sure there's some value in that, but there's also whatever you, know, you had in mind at, yeah. uh, at launch. Yeah, because well, I really respect our audience. I really do believe that you know, I was put in this earth to be one of the people who empower our children. Um, I've worked with these organizations. I know them inside out. I know all top, all the top companies I have relationships with and understand their strategies and how they think. And they're focused on a very different person, very different muse. Um, so somebody has to focus on the kids, like intimately understand what they truly need and build a business surrounding them and, and for them, not just with them in mind, but literally build something that's for them only. Um, partnering with someone doesn't allow me to, you know, control the narrative and keep it honest. It would have been more about, hey, let's put our logo all over the place. Let's turn children into a billboard to promote. I'm like, no, that's not what I believe in. I want to put great product on a child and I want them to be the hero. The product isn't the hero. They're the hero. And we're thankful that they choose our product to be, you know, um, part of their life's journey. But by no stretch of the imagination do we see ourselves branding our children. We want to build them up. So in order to do that right, we have to be independent. We have to do it on our own because if, if, if school lunches are privatized, then we need to privatize recess and play and make sure that it's done in a way that really has the focus of the child in mind. 
Vision. You talked about it earlier, yep. and not uh, from the Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unless you were talking about the, no, uh, no. <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> yes and he's, he's part of the thing, but not really. Um, where, like, what do you? I don't know. What, what's the size of this company that you see? Do you see it like being being a globally recognized brand? You know, like insert company name here. Yeah. Um, or do you have a very specific, you know, niche audience in mind, which is which is still great, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I don't. Where's what's what does your vision tell you? I mean, you know, in my in my gut uh, and in my heart, you know, there are two trains of thought. There's the there's what the world wants, which is, you know, you have to give the perfect answer as a founder. Oh, you got to build this up to be a billion dollar business. It needs to be a billion dollar business. OK, then 50 years from now, it'll be a trillion dollar business. What does that really mean? The metric we focus on is if we can get every single child in the world to feel capable and empowered and feel like they can do anything through play, then we're successful. So whether that means we're a massive company that has experiences from building a school system to a playground system to theme parks to hotels, then that's one path. Hey, that's great. We now become a new, more performance-driven Disney. Whether it's, you know, as you mentioned, niche or what we call focused, because there's a concept of super serving that comes from entertainment, where instead of selling a million albums, one album to one person, you get a dedicated audience of 100,000 people and you're able to give them 10 high-quality things. That's one method. So going deep with the group of people who love play, who are looking for these opportunities but don't know where to search. You know, I can't, I'm not so naive to try to predict my own future, but I do believe that this message is resonating with people because no one has ever tried to attack it in a positive way. So I would say success for us, vision for us, is to see a generation of children that go out and get back to being curious instead of being forced to have mastery and rote memorization. Like, that's great, you know, your times tables, but let me give you a blank sheet of paper and let me see what you can create from scratch because we need that. That's going to protect our economy. That's going to protect our healthcare system. That's going to protect us as we get older. We need to give our children problem-solving skills because they have to think in a very different way. They have to be polymaths because they're dealing with the information age, the interaction age, the automation age. They're at the, we're at the convergence point like Ray Kurzweil talks about, you know, this notion of singularity. We're at that moment. We haven't been educated to take advantage of that moment. Our children will be. So it's like, why don't we give them the building blocks to use technology responsibly so they're not enslaved to it? So that's through free thinking and play. You explore with no boundaries and you can make great decisions based on emotional intelligence and physical engagement. And if we do that well, then we are the ones who are the guardians of the creative youth. We are the ones who help them develop that skill set so they can be true leaders that lead with empathy and intent. I think it takes a, a strong founder or a strong visionary to realize that they need to re- remain nimble at the very beginning. Because um, I love that the fact that your answer, your answer for the vision is kind of like, let's see what happens, right? And, and investors, most of them, they won't give you that leeway. It's like, what's the path? Where are you headed? Yep. Um, how do you balance the difference between those two things? Because you do, you need some, like yep. you need 50 yards of vision, yep. and then who knows how you're going to get to the 100-yard line. Absolutely. right. Like, um, but how do you balance that out? And how do you convey that message in a way that uh, you know your business partners – present company included, yep. you know, uh, feel uh, confident? Well, I would say first is by having a strong mission. Now, how that mission comes to life is based upon the market. So our, our mission is very clear. It's to entertain and delight every child in the world through imaginative and interactive play. We didn't say imaginative and interactive shoes or clothes. We just said no matter how this generation plays, we want to be a part of it. So today they play using digital technology. Tomorrow they may play using immersive experiences like really holographic environments. We don't know. We know that wherever children are, however they play, we want to be a part of it and we want to innovate in that space. So that's the first piece, having a, a big, what they call, you know, the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal. That's our mission. That's our big, hairy, audacious goal is to 
turn a whole world into a giant playground. You're talking about my ex girlfriend. <laughs> I feel I'm sorry for you if that's, yeah. <laughs> if that's what you think of. Uh, think of Big Harry. But sec- secondarily, you know, when investors they understand that you really can only think about three years out, you know, because you got your first year where you're just figuring out how to get your stuff off the ground. You're learning how people receive you. Second year, you've got a sharp point. You kind of double down on it. Third year, you can start to measure it. So all of my pitch decks, all of my strategies are written three years out. I know I can only really see around a corner about 24 to 36 months because you can kind of think of how trends really happen. Year one, you got the alpha consumer or alpha audience member who finds it early adopter. Year two, you got the second layer of, oh, that's cool. I see a friend of mine who's really cool. I'm going to do what they do. Year three, now it's mainstream. So we want to follow that cadence and say by year three, we bring to life our full vision, our full ecosystem, which is called the Hero Lab. And about at that time, we've established authenticity, trust. People know our message. They've understood why we're building our product. Then we can start to take them to where we really want to go. Uh, if you envision yourself as a superhero, what's your weakness? I mean, you seem super knowledgeable and in tune with, yeah. I, I haven't, I haven't stumped you yet. Um, <laughs> what, like, what is the Jason Maiden, you know, kryptonite, whether in business or personal life or, you know, um, you know what it is? Um, my, my kryptonite. <laughs> your boy just pointed at, at himself. <laughs> is that Hirsch? I'm, I'm kryptonite. Yeah, but yeah, but beyond my co-founder, who always bothers me with, with <laughs> 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 exactly. no, he knows because it's like her, I think my greatest weakness is I don't I don't I don't know what I'm able to do. I don't see what the world sees when they look at me. Like I'm very. He always makes fun of me, but I don't I don't get it. I don't get why people are interested to talk to me. I don't get what people see about my talent. I really don't see it. So it's almost like because I grew up being a kid who was in a hospital who was sick, I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't look like everyone else I lived around. I didn't develop this sense of self-identity that was like, oh, I'm so great. I'm so amazing. So it's almost as if like, you know, when superheroes don't know their own strength until they're put in this moment and they have to be tested and they realize, like, wait, this whole time it was inside of me. Like the line from Spider-Man with Tony, oh, yeah. with Tony Stark's is like, yo, if you're nothing without the suit, then maybe you didn't deserve it. That's how I feel about my team. I said, yo. <laughs> that's how I would have said it. <laughs> if I was Tony Stark, I'd say, yo, boom, check it. Uh, but then that's that thing, you know, I, I used to, like case in point, I didn't realize, like this past week, you know, my car was broken into and they took my laptop. And I had to stop and, I th- and thought like, oh my gosh, my laptop's going, I can't work, I can't get anything done. And literally that quote popped into my head, if you're nothing without this suit, then maybe you don't deserve it. And I thought to myself, if I can't still help kids, still can't create without my laptop, then maybe I don't deserve this opportunity. Maybe this isn't meant for me. And then I simple, simplified the, to myself and say, you know what, Jason, when you got into design, all you had was a piece of paper and coloring pencils. That's, that's how you literally got into design. You would just draw stuff. You would make stuff. You would just simplify the process. But I became so reliant on technology to fuel my process, I thought that that was the way I was talented. So having that humbling experience of having something taken from me and being stripped down to analog creation tools, it reminded me like, man, I don't know what I'm capable of until I'm putting that moment to be tested. So it's it's the hero's journey, man. Like the hero doesn't know they're a hero until they're fighting, they discover their villain, yeah. you know? Um, and I think right now I'm discovering what I'm up against and, and I'm finally realizing what I can do. That's crazy. Yeah, it's funny because... Um, I'll go home sometimes and I'll be like, I'll, I'll tell my wife, hey, this happened to me or this person. I, I had a call with this person. And, or like, and she's like, of course. Like, you know, yeah, and yeah. I, I'm like you. I kind of don't see it. But I think what happens is you, your opening line when you're here, he's like, you're a big kid. And I think it allows you to, to look at every opportunity, every conversation with this wide eyed, like, 
wonder as opposed to like a jaded sort of what are we here for kind of exactly uh, you know thing. Some of them may be Midwestern values. I mean, you from Detroit, you know how we're raised. Like we have, you have you know mixed income communities, blue collar workers, first generation immigrants, military veterans. Like you have people that have sacrificed something to live the American dream around you every single day. So it's not like I grew up around people that had already made it. All I saw were people who were trying to make it. So it's really hard to, to ever think that I've arrived. Because I'm like, I was born out of manufacturers and civil rights activists and people who were pastors and ministers and farmers, just everyday people. So I keep an everyday mindset, which sometimes may not help me because I don't see what the world sees. Right. Um, so to your point, you go home, your wife's like, of course, you're Chris Denson. Like, yo, look at you like, uh, no, nah, but I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm the same way. But also it's, it's interesting too, because you were also a parent, yep. right? Uh, you have kids, so I can see where another level of empathy comes in as you design products and, and things and things like that. But also, continuing to instill those sorts of values, especially as you enter these other worlds that may feel glamorous or, you know, bright, bright lights um, to somebody on the outside looking in. How do you maintain, like, how do you pass that down to, and I'm probably asking for myself, um, how do you pass (laughs) that down to your kids? Like, Hey, all right. I, you know, it's, it's, there's a, I'll shut up in a second, but there's a quote that I like is like, uh, sometimes we try so hard to give our kids what we didn't have that we forget to give them what we did have. Yep. Um, how do you handle being a parent and, you know, a superstar hero designer? Um, you know, I, I think we've, we've often told our children that their you know, position of privilege is to help other people. Um, so we do a lot of volunteer projects. We serve a lot. My kids are always with me. You know, when I go and lecture to other kids, um, we travel a lot internationally to, to places where there's no technology, where kids don't have a lot. Because um, my wife's family is in South America, in Colombia. And so we have the good fortune of being in a city you know, like Medellin and then going out, you know, like Sierra Nevada, which is like in the mountains on a finca and watching kids who've never seen an iPad and navigate the forest with a dog. Like this is real life. And my kids play with these children. And they learn from them and they share with them. And they realize like, wait, how we live is not the norm. We can complain about, oh, man, you know, I don't have enough money to get the latest iPhone. But to the eyes of the world, we're extremely wealthy, even though I don't we're in comparison to Silicon Valley. No way <laughs> we're wealthy. But in the eyes of the world, we are. So that's the first piece, teaching my children that their position of privilege is uh, is, is meant for them to be servants. Secondly, um, I'm open about my insecurities and weaknesses with my kids. I talk to them in the same way I talk to adults because the world unfortunately, is different than how we grew up. You know, um, childhood is no longer a thing. And so I have to mentally prepare my children to understand the world through discernment. So um, I take them to art museums and teach them how to critique art and interpret imagery because that's what they're up against. All the stuff that's going to trap them and trick them is going to come through some form of content. So I teach them how to look at a piece of content, how to look at a piece of art or a sculpture and say, what do you think the artist is trying to tell you? What emotions do you want? does that artist want you to feel? Because it gets them to, to be critical thinkers, right, to analyze the world. And then thirdly, um, you know, I tell my kids all the time um, that no one's going to pick up after them. They have their own responsibilities. They don't I don't give them anything. There was never a shoe collection that my son had. He's not a sneakerhead. Um, He wore it, wears the same pairs of shoes. So they have holes in them. Um, We don't go out and, you know, and uh, and just give them a ton of free stuff. They have to earn everything. My son, anything he gets, he has to pay 50 percent on it. So he wants a video game. Okay, work, get half of it, you know, Um, we tell them all the time, hey, we don't have money put up for you for college. You got, you got to get there on your own. Now, we do. That's the, <laughs> fortunate right. enough we, we have a chance to, to, to have savings to, to save for college. But 
in their mind, they're thinking like, I got to figure it out. Like my parents, without them, man, okay, what am I going to do? So our kids are, are very uh, efficient and very self-reliant because we're teaching them how to figure out stuff on their own. Because there will be a time when we won't be around. And if their only solution is throw money at it, if there's a problem, throw money at it. Then that's not, those aren't resilient children. So Make uh, it rain on your problems. Yeah, you can't do that. So that's, that's, <laughs> how, that's how we think about the parent intent, you know? Um, there's a, a lot of chatter uh, around diversity and entrepreneurship mm. and technology and so on and so <laughs> forth. Um, you know, uh, African-American and Indian co-founder, hey. um, you know, what does your company look like? And also, uh, has that, the, the, how does it play out in your business dealings? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is, um, a lot of people assume it's, it's an army of us because of the amount of work we've done, the fidelity of the work. It's really only three people. You know, it's myself, um, Herschel, or Hirsch, as we affectionately call him, co-founder, then our COO, um, who also coincidentally doubles as my dad in his off days. Um, he's like my literal dad. Um, and so <laughs> it's true. People are like, that's your dad? Like, yeah. They thought it was your older brother. Like, no, nah, that's, that's my dad. Um, he still got it. Yeah, still got it, man. He's out there, man. It points with his pinky and everything. <laughs> oh, he definitely got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> West side of Chicago. Here, long pinky no long nail. He's a military <laughs> military man. He's more, okay, more, right, yeah, right. more special forces pointing or aiming, I should say. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and so I think the first piece is this. There's no lack of diversity in consumerism. So people never complain about it. There's not enough people of different backgrounds buying our products. So I always get confused when I hear that there's no diversity in tech, this, that, and the third. I think we need to flip it. We have control because we pay for everything. You know, we're buying these, these, these devices. We're going to these concerts. We're watching these movies. No one complains about diversity in the consumption of what you create. People complain about the diversity in the creation. So I think for us as people who are considered um, melanated, I don't believe in the word minority to begin with because globally we look at numbers. We're not minorities. So that's the first piece. Have a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset. In the U.S., we may be told we're minorities, but globally, look at the math, man. I mean, the melanated demographic is, is vast. Okay, I'm going to interject because that just resonates. So um, I, I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. that I'm in the middle of this 30-day challenge, right? And yeah. part of it is, you know, you do a physical thing during the day. And like every day you commit to something and yeah. then you do some reading and then you do like reflection period. It's, it's always, you know, about 20 minutes total in the morning, yeah. right? Um and, you know, we had to read Steve Jobs' commencement speech. We've just all sorts of different things. We've been in the consumer. I'm on day 17 right now. Yeah. Um, and one of them was uh, we had to read Martin Luther King's speech, the last one he gave before he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. um, and then I read like an excerpt and I was like, oh, let me just watch the YouTube video of it. And yeah. uh, as I watched it, he said something which really just tripped me out, which was. At the time, when I don't even remember what I'm not, I'm no historian, but yeah. I know he was around a while, a while, a while back. <laughs> um, but he said, you know, when he started calling for boycotts, he was saying there's 30 billion dollars of black salary mm -hmm. uh, alone. He's like, that's more than the GDP of X Y Z country. Yes. And like he named like jerk, like he named big countries. It wasn't like some you know small yeah. little island thing. Yeah. Um, and. It, Honestly, in my 41 years of life, that was the first time I heard it framed that way. Yeah. Um, so, uh, sorry, it just uh, I thought about that as you were saying, you know, we're not a minority in that, uh, even just dollar-wise. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so with that mindset, I realized, like, wait, I'm walking in here representing a very powerful consumer. So if you want to make change, you have to vote with your dollars. That's the first piece. Secondarily, when I go in there, the rank and file is I'm obviously black. 
I don't have to say it. I don't have to go in and, and, and say, oh, I'm a black founder. No, I am a founder that happens to be black. But look at me as being in the same class as the world's greatest designers. That's my goal. When people say, oh, well, diversity, I'm like, man, I'll fight for it. We care about it. We think about it when we recruit. You know, it's important for us to have an organization that looks like the world, right? Because that's where we want products that empower all children and all children come from all walks of life. But more importantly, I'm like, don't say I'm a black designer. Say I'm a designer. You know, it's the reason why people like John Maeda have helped me because he sees me for what I can do. When people talk about our company, don't say it's a black company. Say it's a great company. I don't want to be subjugated to something that makes it seem like it's, it's less than. Like just because it's a minority founded company, it shouldn't be hyphenated as if it's not as fully valuable as the next man's company or next woman's company. It's like, no, we, we, we are the people that create waves. We don't ride them. Minorities do a lot with nothing. Or I should say melanated people do a lot with nothing. So, if we realize our own self-worth, we stop falling for the traps and tricks of being told we have limits because there are no limits. It's only the ones we mentally place on ourselves. And we realize that we have to start voting with our dollars and supporting things that um, that aren't necessarily considered mainstream, but, but things that are emergent and more culturally relevant. Then we'll see that shift, you know. And that's the main thing I tell a lot of people. Go out and start companies, but also support the ones that do exist. And when the market shifts, then you'll force organizations to think about serving this consumer that will be the, the majority of our country by 2030. Oh, uh, twenty. I think was it twenty fifty. I think. Um, so it's 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 a fascinating time because we. I think we're in the middle of people trying to trying to muddy the conversation of what diversity means. It's a lot of gray area in that. For me, what it means is ethnic and socioeconomic. That's it. You know, right. um, and, and within the ethnicity is of course gender because I think that's the bigger one that people forget is the gender diversity is probably worse than. Um, uh, at least in tech, than, than, than the male diversity. Even though I am a minority or a black founder, I still am in a room full of guys. So technically, I still can relate because I'm a guy. So I can't sit here and feel so sorry for myself because there are women out there who are being mistreated daily and they don't have any representation in leadership. So I feel like it's up to me who, who, you know, a person who has the opportunity to be in a room because, you know, because of the bro code, me being a guy, and they may feel comfortable with me to now fight for them to make sure they have a place at the table. So it's all about where you focus, man. That's where you get your return. And so I focus on positivity. I focus on building. And I don't feel sorry for myself and I don't make excuses. Yeah, two things that brings up for me. One is a couple of years ago, I signed a pledge that I wouldn't be on a panel unless there was a woman on it. Um, and, I, you know, I tried to stick to it as, as best as possible. And so far, so good. Yeah. Um, and the second is uh, just on the diversity conversation, one more beat is that I got interviewed by a pretty notable outlet. And it was like, uh, it, was, it was in February. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay. And one of the questions that they asked was, how do we do a better job of celebrating diversity? And I said, stop celebrating diversity. Yeah. Right? It is, uh, there's no reason you should come to me for an interview in February. Like, yeah. Why can't it be July? You know? <laughs> like, let's go, through, let's go through our black index. Like, oh, black yeah. index. Like LinkedIn, just like profile <laughs> clicks. <laughs> nope, nope. Where's a Taekwon? I need him. <laughs> Um, uh, so, um, <laughs> eventually from a marketing standpoint, switch gears, um, every brand, you know, especially coming from a Nike or in any other number of other things you've been involved in, um, has a number of influencers around it or brands want to connect with influencers. I know a couple of years ago, you started a company with Steph Curry yep. uh, called Slice, which yep. kind of looked at how brands interact with you know, uh, the social uh, capital of, of a, a said influencer. Yep. Um, 
What are some of the myths <laughs> about uh, about working with talent? I'll put it in quotation marks yeah. um, that you discovered, and I don't know if you're going to approach that as part of your business model, yeah. or uh, but you know, just kind of like what's the Jason Maiden thought on that? Yeah, I would say our number one influencer is the kid. They're the most important person in our ecosystem. It's the reason why we don't make products for adults. So let me preface that: is it's children that always drive our decision making, um, not celebrity culture. So we first um, created archetypal characters. You know, we have content that eventually will roll out and you start to see on some I invite some of these these illustrations done by a very talented local artist named McFly from Atlanta, Georgia, just an amazing talented young man. Um, and we use those as our muse. Instead of saying look up to this person, look we say look up to this idea of a person. Because kids can understand a superhero. They can go and pretend to be Batman. Because it's making it's make believe. It's imagination. But there are limits when I say go out and become this athlete. Like, ah oh, man, I may never be 6'8, 240 with a 48 vertical leap, you know, 30, 48 inch vertical leap. That's impossible. That's genetics. So we first start by having archetypal characters that, you know, we ascribe to each of our different product segments. Um, secondly, I think the myth of working with influencers is that they, they're knowledgeable and they're all like very like capable and talented. You have to realize the difference between an influencer. And you is that they get so much access to information daily that they're just better armed with information. That's really what it is. Like sitting with an athlete, sitting with a celebrity and realizing that everyone around them is trying to tell them their best stuff so that they can impress them or, or be in their good graces or be part of that inner circle. They just they just have better data to pull from a better cross section of industries. They're with attorneys, nutritionists, brand marketers, companies. So every day they're being informed and being educated by the people around them. So uh, most of the time, influencers are fascinated by the fact that you can do something they can't do. So most people go in intimidated, like, oh, man, I'm so thankful that you let me in this room. But you don't realize they're just as excited to meet you, even if they don't show it. They're like, wow, you design shoes? That's crazy. Or you do this? Man, that's crazy. I can't believe that. When I was, a... And you realize like your gifts and talents are fascinating to them. Because in order for them to become that athlete or celebrity, they've done one thing really, really well consistently over time that made them become well-known in their craft. LeBron James has played basketball really, really, really well for a really long time. So when he meets someone with my skill set, that's not his skill set. So he respects that. They respect the craft of others. So go in knowing that you have something to offer. And, and once you know that, have that mindset, then you could put yourself in a position of feeling like you're a peer, not just a fan or not just someone underneath them, but you're a peer. Um, they're humans. They're people. And just as much as we have concerns and, and fear, so do they. And I think... That's the beauty of what we're building since it's centralized around the concept of childhood and play. Whether you're you know, an athlete or whether you're an entrepreneur, everybody can agree on two things. One, at some point, we were all kids. And two, play was the thing that inspired us the most when we were children. Everybody has their favorite childhood memory and it involves some form of play, whether it's with a parent, whether it's on a field trip. Um, and that's the connective tissue you know, that, that we think about is, is, is uh, aspirations in childhood you know, all through the lens of your favorite play memory. So our influences are great, man. They came to our event last week and most of them hung around and put on capes, like people that are very cool that would normally, you know, people like yourself, you know, that would normally be like, oh, I'm not taking a picture with a cape. I'm not taking a picture. They're just willingly putting it on and, and pretending and laughing and joking and letting their guard down. And that's awesome because you don't see that. You don't get to see the softer side of celebrityism when they're with their children, when they're just being regular people. And that to me is important because the most influential thing that we want to promote is being an involved parent. Like I can care less you're standing on a red carpet. That's cool. That's dope. But are you at your child's soccer game? Do you read bedtime stories? 
you know, are you there for when the tooth falls out? It's so, it's so funny. I was at South by a couple years ago, and uh, Killer Mike was being interviewed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, run the jewels, Killer Mike. Uh, you know, he's a I'm, great man. Had sex with the women and shot everyone. Yeah. Um, uh, but <laughs> he's a smart man. He's super smart. But uh, like, very first question, you know, he was like, "I'm a dad first. And like, the whole like interweaved throughout this whole conversation. Yep. Was the time he spent? I, there's something I even stole from him because he said <laughs> he said. Uh, I mean, I didn't steal from him. Inspired I mean, by. I was inspired. Yeah. Inspired. Don't come. Don't come over. <laughs> um, no. I, <laughs> he said he takes a two liter bottle. Mm-hmm. He, he said, Did you know, if you fill up a two liter bottle with dimes, you'll have five hundred dollars at the end of it. And he's like, I do this with my kids. And yeah. It's like they you find a dime, like put it in a thing, and it's like first of all. You know, in my mind, I'm like, you have money. Your your kids have money, and I know that's not true, but yeah. um, but that's I, I have a two liter bottle that's a third of the way full at my house right now, yeah. and it's it's those kinds of moments that I think we it re- eventually end up gravitating toward more than the stage, per, you know, person. Yep. Um, in that ecosystem, a hundred percent. How has technology played a role? You, I mean, you mentioned losing your laptop, right? Uh, yes. But then <laughs> kind of returning to the analog, you have you have laptop insurance. I, I yeah, that. I got it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know how you know since you started design and up until now, actually relying on pen and paper versus what other tools are you looking at out there? Are you looking at like AR, VR, you know, or some some hybrid of those things? Yeah, I mean, I think we we we're living at an age of interaction that's unprecedented. So everything from AR to machine learning, you know, through neural networks to predictive analytics to you know, low power LTE, you know, uh, sensors or radios that can be embedded in products to create the Internet of Things. Like there is a suite of technology out there, but that's not what we focus on. We focus on what is the problem we're trying to solve. And then we back into what is the best technology to solve that problem. If the technology is simply, you know, hey, it just needs to be um, a little bit better fitting product, it needs to be comfortable. That doesn't include a sensor or a radio or some form of machine learning or traditional digital tech. So I think we've become fascinated with the word technology meaning all things digital. Sometimes it just means, you know, storytelling can be a new innovative way of putting something out there. The color palette can be an innovative way material. So it's broad spectrum of, of, of technology. That, that's how we think about it. But everything's focused on what is the problem we're trying to solve rather than here's this tech. How can we use it? I think that's that to me is exactly why companies fail is because when you become enslaved to what technology is relevant and accessible to you at that moment, then you're never really thinking about how's the consumer or your audience really evolving. So that's why we start with the phone as a companion app. We want to use things that are naturally in the parents, you know, ecosystem. They're going to have their phone. They're going to be checking Facebook and these other platforms to find parenting information. Why don't we just put that inside of our app to let them know where to find playgrounds, let them read a content feed of relevant content towards parents who are looking for activities help them use, you know, the phone to measure their child's foot. They're going to take pictures of their kids anyway. Can that picture give them more information, right? That's just computer vision. And that's machine learning on the back end. They don't know that. They just know it's a picture I took and it's telling me the size of my child's foot. So Can you help me find my dad? Uh, you know what? That's probably the government and a private <laughs> investigator. But I think uh, if, if it helps, then, hey. Hey, that's Ab, good. Where's, my, where's my dad? Where's my daddy? <laughs> it's like, I'm saying, App just shuts down, phone crashes, <laughs> spinning wheel of death. Um, so, yeah, it's all, it, we're, we're, we're problem driven. You know, we're, we're, and I think that's the role of designers is to identify better problems to right. solve, not just to provide solutions. That's great. Um, you've seen a lot, you've been all over the world um, and, and worked in a lot of different capacities. Uh, what is your current innovation crush? What's something you look at and gives you goosebumps or an experience you've had that you're like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Oh man, you know, um, 
I'll be honest with you. It was the VR lab at Stanford doc, run by Dr. Jeremy Bailson. Um, it was the most transformative experience I had because I've always wanted to be inside of a livable video game. Like I played with, you know, holograms and holographic imagery um, at Nike on some side projects. I've played with AR. But until I put on these goggles in the VR lab and I was put in a situation where I had to roll reverse, I was inside of the body of a woman and I had to deal with men being very aggressive towards me in a meeting. And you just um, automatically, your emotions shift, your mind shifts, and you feel like, wow, this is what it's like to be sexually harassed. This is what it's like to be a woman in a room full of men. Like, are you, are you're actually covering your chest I'm right covering now. my chest. Yeah, like, like, no, seriously. I mean, this is real. It, it changed me. It changed me completely to realize the power of technology and how once you're able to be inside of someone else's shoes and see the world how they see it, that's true empathy. So I, it pushed me down this path of what technology can bring about the spirit of immersive empathy. I need to actually understand how they feel, not just what they do and the why they do it, but how they feel while they're doing it. And so I think the power of VR, the power of AR, immersing someone in, in someone else's shoes, like that's my innovation crest. That's why I'm so bullish on that technology, because for the first time, I can see the world through the eyes of someone else. You know, we always talk about walk a day in your shoes. Now we literally can do it. <laughs> and if you haven't had that experience, man, of going through that type of VR simulation, if you're a leader in an organization and you're a man, I suggest you do it ASAP. Because until you feel what it's like to be in that situation, you never can create an org that makes everyone feel welcomed. I, that's, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think especially in VR, there's so much sensationalism over the entertainment capabilities of it. And I, I personally, I feel like it's that's hugely limited. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, I was in London at the uh, the VR show, and it was like the first one. It was like ten thousand, you know, attendees and a bunch of different experiences. The one that blew me away the most was uh, freaking, it's a company out of Chicago actually yeah. that, that did it. Um, but you got to be in the body of a seventy-two-year-old man. If you had the headset on, you could—I mean, the uh, earphones on—you couldn't hear very well. Like it was muffled sound. You're sitting. It was your birthday. People were saying, and then you also had like a like a, I don't know uh, ophthalmology that well, but it was like a glaucoma, like a, a dark spot. So everywhere you looked, you actually couldn't even see the full frame. And then at some point, you know, uh, a doctor—you have to—they take you to the doctor because they realize you're not well. And then the doctor hands you a thing. You actually put on a hearing aid, and suddenly you can hear the doctor better. Um, but I just, you know, I have. Uh, Alzheimer's. My grandmother died of Alzheimer's, yeah. uh, not of it, but you know she had Alzheimer's before she died uh, a few years ago, and there was a little bit of a riff in our family just because like you don't have the empathy of what it's like. You, you get know. frustrated with the Alzheimer's patient, right? Because you're like, no, no, just sit down. Like, and and then other times it becomes funny, right? It's uh, yeah. Yeah. it's this balance, but to have that empathetic experience was like, oh, okay, I 100% understand this. So yeah. I think there's so many different whether it's Women or Elgin. minorities, yeah, minorities, <laughs> right? Yeah. right. Like, yeah, all this. It's, it's. I think there's a lot of power and impact in that. Um, good example. <laughs> uh, last but not least, um, complete this phrase for me. Yeah, innovation. To, why are you laughing? At <laughs> 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 he can't complete a phrase. <laughs> um, innovation to me is. Hmm. So that's that phrase, man. Such a good one. Innovation to me is is relevancy, being relevant. You know, um, and the reason I say that is because sometimes we don't innovate at the at the pace of human aspiration. We innovate at the pace of compute computational power. Um, and I think we slow down and remember people. People, we're fundamentally pretty much the same as we've always been. Like we've learned more. Our bodies have changed. We went from 
you know, from, you know, maybe, you know, being hunters and gatherers to now, you know, creators and seekers, entrepreneurs. But at the same time, we're still humans who still navigate by the stars, who still draw on walls to tell stories. But we have all this access to technology and we try to push people at the speed of that. And without slowing down and really moving at the pace of humanity, we miss these moments to be present. And then we become, once again, disconnected from the world that we live in. And we live in this virtual world that we created. So we as a company are moving at the pace of how children evolve. You know, children will take a paper box and that's their virtual reality. They'll jump inside of a moving box and all of a sudden be inside of a spaceship. That's VR for a child. VR for an adult, we put on goggles. So we say, okay, what's the technology that children need? Not the technology that I can come up with coming out of Stanford. That's different. That's, that's impressing technologists. That's focused on computational power. We're focused on creativity and empathy and emotional intelligence, which means sometimes a box isn't just a box. Sometimes it's a silo and it makes a noise when you open it. That's, that's, to me, that's magical. That's whimsical. So tech doesn't always have to be, or innovation doesn't always have to be Star Wars technology. Sometimes it can simply be thinking it's, you know, using something common in an uncommon way. That's great. Um, I was going to end the interview, but I have another question. <laughs> Remix. No, I saw you use this phrase and I thought it was pretty interesting and I wanted to understand a little bit better, mm-hmm. which was cultural alchemist. Mm-hmm. Um, describe, explain that, please. So there's a term that's very um, techie. It's called a polymath. You know, it's a person that has a lot of different skill sets. Um, you know, pop culture calls it a renaissance man or woman. Um, I think our generation, they're cultural alchemists simply because I can live in Chicago, listen to music from Brazil, eat food from Japan, wear clothes from Paris, talk to my friends who live in Sweden, all through my mobile device. So my whole style, my whole purview of the world is a mixture of everybody else's culture simply because we're connected for the first time in a non-biased way. That's what the Internet allowed us to do. So with alchemy, like, you know, the, the notion of alchemy and the whole point of it, mixing metals, um, that's what's happening right now. People are going to mix together all these disciplines, industries, you know, um, cultural, you know, I would say nuances and create their own style. So having done this project at Nike um, called Predator that focused on the evolution of Michael Jordan as the perfect predator to capture his prey and predictive analytics, it was real data driven. I realized that so much of what we've done in the sports industry is driven through designing for a position of an athlete. Here's a shoe that's designed for a point guard. Point guards are typically small, so I make a shoe that's lightweight and fast. But when you get a player like a LeBron that can play every position, like, what do you do? How do you design for a person that doesn't fit the mold? So you have to look at their style. So I took that mindset, you know, into everything I did after Nike. Like, I can't focus on a position. Like, I need to start a tech company. Let me find an engineer because they're in the position to build technology versus let me find a person's style of creation. And they may not know that tech is heavy, you know, in their creation style, but it's relevant. Case in point, the EDM movement. You know, you see these kids using Ableton, right? That's technology. They're technically sound engineers. They're not, they haven't been told that. They don't have the vocabulary for it, but they know enough about tech to work that interface. I, I try to touch Ableton. I'm like, I have no clue what that is. I have one at home. It's, it's collecting dust. It's, that's what I'm saying. And, and like, <laughs> I look at my son who's going to DJ camp in New York in, in a few weeks uh, with Scratch Academy, and like he jumps on as if he's just, like, it's like a QWERTY keyboard to him. Like, I can, I can kill a Blackberry. I can send a, <laughs> a million emails with my thumbs. My son get on the Ableton in 15 minutes. Boom, 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 boom. And he doesn't realize, like, wow. What you just did, people have studied 20 years to do, right? So 
that's the cultural alchemist. It's the girl in, or the young woman in New York who works part time at a you know small coffee shop in Brooklyn in Williamsburg, where she's teaching herself to code. She also makes her own clothes. She loves tattoos. She also, I mean, it's that person. How do you create an opportunity for that person that doesn't fit neatly into a category? That's what I'm obsessed with because I think those are where the breakthroughs in technology or breakthroughs in entrepreneurship are going to come from are from people like that. Yeah, this is because you know my lens usually is as a marketer, right? Like, yeah. and and a couple of years ago, you know, we do a lot of trends and things like that, and uh, trend reporting, and we start talking about the multi hyphenate, yep. and how yeah. does how does you know brand X speak to a multi hyphenate? Is you know mom isn't just going to the store to pick up diapers anymore. You know, mom is doing all the things you just mentioned, right? Yeah. And so the conversation and the experiences that you create for that that multi hyphenate individual is going to be a little bit different than it was you know ten or fifteen years ago, and probably will continue to be different as yeah. the alchemy kind of d- does its magic. Yeah. So uh, so thank you for that. Um, where can people find more about superheroic or you or Hirsch? Um. <laughs> but I think if you just Google the word Hirsch, a whole query of it, his SEO optimization is, is, on, right. is lit. Um, but <laughs> but uh, you can go to superheroic.com. Um, that is a website. You can follow us on Instagram at superheroic. Um, at Twitter, it's at underscore superheroic. Facebook, we're, we're out there in the world. Um, I would say, you know, definitely, um, you know, if you can't find us, look for us on the playground. You know, uh, if you, if you, I think you should bring ABC back. I keep every time you say playground, I keep thinking, oh, all right, right. you just look at each other. Oh, shut up. Let's cut it off. Remix. That was the weirdest ending to an animation crew ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, thank you for, and congratulations to you both. You know, on thank on this and all the success. Thank you, sir. So, thank, um, thank you. Everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time.